0: The the Kashif one should have probably been like a 45 minute episode. <laughs> How dare you? I'm not saying he's not worthy, but
1: <laughs> I'm waiting for the recut of that. I want the 2 hour Kashif. <laughs> Welcome to i Buy That, for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, preeminent squasher of Discogs Beefs. I'm co-host Jeremy,
2: special advisor to the Discogs Relations Department at Hard Bargain Incorporated
1: Enterprises. You've been spending a lot of time making up that title for this week. I could tell that's uh, hours and days and weeks of preparation right there. Definitely not off the dome. No, no way. How could it be?
0: I am co-host Peter Cook, author of the new book, Hey Joe, where are you going with that song in your hand? A Complicated History.
1: Whoa. We have a fellow author on the podcast, finally. (laughs) Fellow author. Exactly. I have two <laughs> books published myself, if you go back to the, all the titles.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Jeremy, when are you getting published?
2: Oof. I have so many. I have such an insane pile of rejection letters, guys. <laughs> well, keep your head up there, kid. I'd like to think it's my penmanship, but it's
1: probably <laughs> the content. It could be the content. Speaking of content, you guys want to talk about a record?
0: That's what we're here to do. Yeah, I believe it's my turn.
1: I believe that as well. So what record have you decided after a long, painful decision between many, many amazing dollar bin heat records you have picked? Which one?
0: Yes, I did have a little bit of a struggle deciding what I was going to do this week, Sean, and I have landed on the sixth album. From Quicksilver Messenger Service, simply titled Quicksilver, and it came out on Capitol Records in November
1: 1971. Well, shoot, what's the first track? Let's get into it.
0: I would like to start in a rather standard fashion with the opening track, Side A, track one. It is called Hope. Oh,
3: Hope. Hope. <laughs>
1: just some quintessential west coast psych music you got there it's even got that little bit of folk and country uh birds-esque influence going on which i just love i'm I'm all about this record and it was fully off my radar before you made this your pick
0: oh cool yeah i was gonna say that you know i mentioned up top that this is november 1971 that this came out uh i feel like In a lot of ways, this has to be one of the last albums of the 60s in spirit, especially on that opening song. Mm -hmm. It's like a a death knell for the 60s. It's
1: a good note to go out on, though, I guess.
0: I've heard some say that the 60s lasted until 1971, and and hearing this, I can believe it. Well, this album didn't sell well, though, right? No, it did not sell well.
2: Yeah, I feel like maybe it... uh you know, came out past its time, you know. Mm -hmm. It's the opposite of the right time, right place thing.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's only in hindsight that it's kind of uh, a curiosity that it sounds so much like something from several years earlier and is doing all those elements and ingredients are coming together for me, you know, very well. Yeah, I was
2: personally shocked when I heard this because I had only known of this band previous to this from my dad telling me the same like story over and over about him going to see a bunch of classic rock bands when he was a teenager. And one of them was Quicksilver Messenger Service, I think like Ram Jam. <laughs> it was a bunch of bands that, All the other bands I had no interest in, so I just never bothered checking out. Of course, I'm not going to check out anything my dad likes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you had mentioned that your, your background was your father liking them, your background with this band.
2: Yeah, which is strange now that I'm actually listening to it, because... He mostly is not into anything with like tinges of psychedelia, really. He's more like the long hair, classic rock kind of vibes.
0: Mm -hmm. They have their moments that are along those lines for sure, too. They have a pretty wide canon of music and they had a lot of members pass through throughout the years. Uh, Sean, what's your background with, with Quicksilver Messenger Service?
1: I remember being a a kid and going to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with my parents, and there being this like crazy looking amplifier with all these like extra horns sticking out of it and weird stuff, and said it was uh, used by the band Quicksilver Messenger Service. I was like, oh, maybe I should check that band out. And then for some reason, I just never did. I've just known they've existed. I've sold their records. I don't know if I've ever actually put a Quicksilver uh, messenger service record on before. And I just don't know why, but here we are. Well,
0: you probably thought that you would have the opportunity to do it whenever you wanted, because you will always find at least a couple Quicksilver messenger service albums in any record store.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it is kind of that vibe. There's definitely bands where it's like, I've seen a bunch and I kind of know, like, I might like this, but for some reason I just, I don't know. You can't, you can't try out new bands every single day. Sometimes you just got to put the stuff on that, you know, you're going to like, and for some reason this one never worked its way in, but here we are. It finally happened. And I like this record at least. This was my first experience with
0: them. I had read about them in Pamela Debar's I'm with the band memoir. Uh, She said that they were her favorite band, favorite live band of the West coast scene in the mid to late sixties. But I had never heard anything by them. Uh, picked this one up at the old Kalamazoo Corner Record Shop in I would say late 2008 early 2009 and I read that it was one of their better outings and that the songwriting was really strong on it so this being the first impression of this band is actually this is quite different from most of their other work this album
1: Yeah, I mean, I listened to a few tracks from some of their earlier stuff when I was making the playlist for this episode, and it seemed like this one was maybe a little more polished and a little more rootsy and less psychedelic leaning than their Mm -hmm. earlier stuff. Is that a fair assessment?
0: Absolutely. A fair assessment. Yes. On this album, they are led by counterculture figure Dino Valente, who was born Chet Powers, you, he, this man has too many names. I won't even say he, he, he would also write under another name. I'm not even going to say it because it gets too confusing. I'll, we'll call him Dino Valenti on this episode. He had been instrumental in the formation of Quicksilver Messenger Service in the mid-1960s, but was immediately imprisoned for drugs before they really got started. And he had actually started as a folk singer, In the early 60s, first in Boston and then New York in the Greenwich Village scene, alongside Bob Dylan, Fred Neal, Richie Havens, and Karen Dalton. I guess Richie Havens is actually said to have uh, been very influenced by Dino Valenti early on. Interesting. Yeah. He ended up moving to the West Coast and became involved in the scenes in LA and then San Francisco. In the summer of 1963, he wrote a song called "Let's Get Together." Do you guys know what song that is offhand?
1: Nope. I think I do. It's not. It seems familiar.
0: It's uh, "Come on, people, now smile on your brother." Yeah, yeah. Everybody, yeah, yeah, get together. Oh, yeah.
1: Right, right, right. That song.
0: Try to love one another right now. That song. He is the author of that song. Re- uh, okay. It was recorded by many artists. It really, it's kind of come to define the hippie movement. I I think it's been used in every movie from that era.
1: (laughs) Yeah, definitely.
0: (laughs) In advertisements, you know, it's just ubiquitous. He had written that when he was staying at his girlfriend, Edie Sedgwick's ranch owned by her wealthy father. This was Edie Sedgwick later of the Warhol factory. This is pre all that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: He sold the rights to that song for $100 when he had legal troubles after getting busted for drug possession and never saw another dime from the royalties to the song, even when it was recorded on Jefferson Airplane's first album in 1966 or when it became a huge hit for the Youngbloods in 1967. That's the one, that the, the most played version. Uh, Jesse Colin Young of the Youngbloods apparently learned that song through seeing Buzzy Linhart, perform it at the cafe a go-go and that's that's how he first came to learn that song and he had buzzy write it down for him that's how it came to be a young blood song the version that we all know
1: interesting i've been starting to get into more jesse colin young related stuff and kind of starting to prepare for doing an episode on him in the future so awesome get ready
0: Yeah, that's definitely one that we should do in the mid-1960s, Dino Valenti claimed authorship to another era-defining song he had learned from a friend and musician named Billy Roberts. Roberts had registered this song under his name with the Library of Congress in 1962. The song? Hey, Joe.
1: Uh,
0: <laughs> yeah. This goes back to my, my title at the beginning. Foreshadowing. Uh, this gets very complicated, and I'm going to spare us – getting too into it. But in some versions of the story, Dino Valenti convinced Billy Roberts to transfer the rights to him so as to give him income upon release from prison. In other versions, Valenti stole it without Robert's knowledge. But the thing is, Billy Roberts had lifted his version of Hey Joe from other existing songs. The chord progression, And Cadence sounds a lot like a song by his former girlfriend, Niella Miller called baby don't go downtown. And she never received any credit. It's very, you can hear that the origins of Hey Joe are in her song. Uh, So if Valenti did steal it, Roberts was getting his just desserts. (laughs) I feel (laughs) so Dino Valenti shopped Hey Joe around Los Angeles, which is how it came to the attention of so many West coast artists First became a hit for the Leaves in 1966. There were versions by Love, The Standells, The Music Machine, which made it a garage rock staple. Of course, several other memorable versions have been released, the best known, of course, being Jimi Hendrix's version. So, those are a couple well known songs that Dino Valente's name is associated with, maybe in some cases uh, <laughs> not so legitimately, but that's who this guy is and let's listen to a song written by him i would like to play don't cry my lady love side b track three
2: believe i didn't find this band earlier it's so up my alley with those nasally ass (laughs) dylan-esque vocals it's got like band vibes it's got some heavy jefferson airplane vibes for a reason
0: yeah very much so (laughs) yeah i almost would describe the vocals as reedy
1: that seems like a good word for it it's just got a little just a little bit of that country twang hidden in a few corners of the music
0: yeah, this album has a lot more folk influence than, and I would say even country influence than a lot of their earlier work. I I think, uh, you know, Dino's time in Greenwich village and whatnot is still very much a part of him on, on this album by this point.
1: I've been just realizing so much lately, how much of the music that I like has a country influence and how I just never fully, recognize that for so much of my life, record collecting and getting into bands and stuff. Mm -hmm. It just pairs so well with so many other things.
0: Yeah. I would say that, you know, it even, uh, soul stuff, soul music can have some, Mm -hmm. some ties to that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Quicksilver messenger service. They were San Francisco contemporaries of the grateful dead, big brother and the holding company. And as Jeremy just mentioned, Jefferson airplane, uh, skip Spence, Was briefly a guitarist for Quicksilver Messenger Service early on before joining Jefferson Airplane as a drummer, and then of course later Moby Grape as well.
1: And that's because they at the time they were using a uh, Jefferson Airplane band members uh, building as a practice space or something like that, right? Yeah,
0: that was (laughs) these groups were yeah they were all tied together. They were all very much sharing spaces and members. (laughs) Mm Hmm. (laughs) Um. So the band had started in 1965 and they quickly became known for their extended jams. Live the twin guitar attack of guitarist, Gary Duncan and John Cipollina. Once that was established, that was a force to be reckoned with. And on their best nights, they would upstage the grateful dead. Interesting. Many people, many people attest to this who were there. Of course they weren't, as commercially successful as any of the bands we just mentioned, they didn't sign a record deal for their first three years of existence. They opted to strictly be a live band, you know, touring around the West coast. They eventually signed with Capitol in late 1967 at the same time as the Steve Miller band. And do you know who was in the Steve Miller band at that time? Steve Miller. <laughs> ha. Ha. Another person was also there. Boss Skaggs.
1: Oh, weird. I did not know that there was that connection. That's interesting.
0: Yeah. Both artists, both the Steve Miller Band and Quicksilver Messenger Service, put out their first albums on Capitol in 1968. So by this release for Quicksilver Messenger Service, the one that we're listening to the, the, today, the 1971 album, only guitarist Gary Duncan and drummer Greg Elmore remained from the lineup that had established the band and Gary Duncan, the guitarist wrote a couple songs on here. And one of them is not just my favorite song on the album or my favorite Quicksilver messenger service song. It is one of my favorite songs of all time.
1: I think I know which one it is. <laughs> that would be,
0: I found love. Love.
1: It's such a banger. Like, yeah, I, I put this record on yesterday or two days ago for the first time. And as soon as that song came on, I was just instantly in love with it. It's so good.
0: It really just, it, it, right away, the instant I heard it, I, I bought the album uh, when I was bought it used many years ago. I was just like, yes, I need this song in my life.
1: <laughs> Can't blame you there. A <laughs> uh, quick note. I had read that they actually got one of the most lucrative record deals of all of the like West coast psych hippie bands of the time, because they were purposely holding out for a better deal than a lot of other people. And also they got a little bit later start than some of their contemporaries. And Mm. by the time they signed with capital who were like one of the only big labels to not have a hit like West coast psych band on the label, they were like willing to pay too much money just to have a good psych band on the label. So good on them for, for playing the game, you know?
0: they did and, and it's funny because then they weren't real you know they, their albums sold well but as far as having hits they only really had one which we'll, we'll talk about a little later but yeah let's check out for now let's check out I Found Love Side A Track 2 I would call that song life-affirming. Mm-hmm. If you're feeling down, put that on.
1: Mm-hmm. I would have to agree with that, definitely. Music is the healing force of the universe, and that song, it's right up there.
0: <laughs> Jeremy, you told us while we were listening that this got your roommate and former guest of the show, Jacob Selner, dancing.
1: Oh, true.
2: He was jamming.
0: Nice. I can see it now.
2: i'm doing it i'm doing it for you again right now my my model version
0: i can visualize it from what little i can hear of you rustling around over there (laughs) i can imagine though that for people who had come to know this band from seeing them live with these extended psychedelic jams and they went into some pretty avant-garde territory at times I, i can imagine that maybe this stuff would have alienated some of that fan base. Their forte had been extended guitar jams, psychedelic mysticism too. a lot of the songs on earlier records had that late sixties vibe going and they weren't doing tender love songs or folk singer songwriter affair. So yeah, as we mentioned earlier, this album did not sell well and I think it didn't really gain them new fans either or really like cement a new direction for them. The fact that longtime members had left probably just didn't help. And it's not because Dino Valenti's running things here. Just a year earlier, the band had had their biggest hit when Dino Valenti penned the lyrics to the song Fresh Air, which I'm still trying to figure out how I knew that song before I got into Quicksilver Messenger service. I don't hear it on classic rock. I don't hear it on oldie stations, but... are you guys familiar? Were you guys familiar with that song before we did this episode? Fresh Air—that is the song, Fresh Air.
1: I don't think so because I saw you posting about trying to figure out where you'd heard it from, and I went and listened to it, and it, it's a great song, but it did not sound familiar to me at all. So, it's a mystery.
0: Yeah, I don't know if it was on a soundtrack to something I was into or or what. Figure it out eventually. Someone said they play it on NPR, but I don't know if that was a joke about you know Fresh Air, the the NPR program. <laughs> it
1: could be a joke. <laughs> I suspect it Seems like the kind of track that would be perfect on one of those like lost leader comps that they used to put out back then, where it'd be like cool artwork and a big double LP gatefold compilation of all the labels' artists, and they would often specifically try to stick all of their artists that weren't selling very well on there in hopes yeah. to like ride the coattails of some of their roster's success. So I, I could see that track being the the perfect pick for something like that.
0: Yeah. Now that you're saying that, I wonder if I I have a number of those comps. That are very strange because they'll put artists that you wouldn't expect to be next to each other on the same comps because they're on the same label.
1: Yeah, you'll get all kinds of goofy stuff like, you know, like James Taylor followed by Captain Beefheart and cool (laughs) shit like that. Yes,
0: that's exactly what I was thinking of. (laughs) Like those kind of comps. Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe I'll, I'll figure it out eventually, but... I was going to do a little breakdown of who the players are on this record though. Of course, we talked about Dino Valenti. He's on guitar vocals. He also has a credit on flute as well as percussion. Gary Duncan on guitar as well. We talked about him. He's the lead guitar. He also has a vocal credit. I think he's doing a lot of the harmonies. I don't know if he's uh, singing lead on the songs that he penned. If he is, he and Dino have very similar voices. So as I understand it, he exclusively fills the lead guitar duties in the absence of John Cipollina, who had left the band to form a project called Copperhead. Greg Elmore is on drums. He's formerly of the band The Brogues, along with Gary Duncan, the guitarist we just talked about. They have a garage rock classic in the single, I Ain't No Miracle Worker. That's one of those Nuggets songs. So that's what they did prior to joining on the Quicksilver Messenger Service. Mark Naftalin on organ and piano. He's from the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. And as I understand it, he replaced Nikki Hopkins in the group. Now, I didn't, I'm not going to claim that I knew about Nikki Hopkins before researching this episode, but holy moly, was he a force in music he is on recordings by the Stones, the Beatles, the Who, and the Kinks. Holy shit.
2: He's, That's a roster. I've heard a couple of those. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I believe he appears on solo albums by all four of the Beatles as well. He's the piano on Revolution, the, the fast version. Interesting. But he, had, Yeah, but he had left Quicksilver Messenger Service. Maybe he had other things going on. <laughs> and, uh... So Mark Ryan is the bassist. He was added when member David Freiberg was incarcerated for a few months for pot possession. The drug possession charges really seem to have hampered this band in many ways.
1: Yeah, that was the main impression I got from reading through their Wikipedia page was like, man, this band had a lot of member changes and a lot of them got arrested for pot use.
2: (laughs) I would argue conversely, though, this band would be nothing without the drugs. It seems like an important element.
0: Yeah, I uh, I think it is factoring in somewhat heavily into their music. So it's all just part of the formula, right?
1: I think the drug use is also apparent in most of the artwork for all their albums, which that is one thing I've always appreciated about this group, which again, I don't know why I didn't listen to these records, other than maybe I just never heard other people talking about how great they were until my friend Peter Cook stepped up to the plate. But the artwork is dope. They've got that like psychedelic yet kind of country influenced artwork down pat with like all of their releases. It's so cool.
0: Yeah. I like this one with the, I think it's an Osprey that's on the cover. It might be a watercolor of an Osprey Mm -hmm. and yeah, they kind of, you go through their, their section and yeah, they, they always have some pretty dope covers. I agree. Whenever you you flip past Quicksilver Messenger Service, which the Q section is always a very small section of record stories.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you will find them there. So we yeah we mentioned this album didn't sell well. Its follow up coming through also sold poorly. There were a lot of personnel shifts over the next few years, including members like John Cipollina and David Freiberg returning, and then some of them leaving again. <laughs> they officially disbanded in nineteen seventy nine. There have been a few reunions with the current version being David Freiberg's Quicksilver Messenger service. John Cipollina died in 1989. Dino Valenti passed away in 1994. And Gary Duncan, the lead guitarist on this one, died in 2019. I think most of the other players associated with this era are still around. And I'd say, yeah, they you will definitely find... Albums by this band. Um, I haven't heard a bad one. Uh, they're definitely probably different ones to different tastes. Like I have the Happy Trails album, which is the live album. And I have to be in the right mood for that one. It's a lot of extended jamming. Some that's not always to my taste. I actually reach for this one more often just because I'm usually in the mood for these folk and pop songs that they're doing on here. Makes sense. So Sean, were you able to put together a comprehensive Spotify playlist related to this album?
1: Oh, I sure was. I I had a couple real good picks that I had in mind for this. And actually some things that I put on here, just thinking they were similar. And then you went and mentioned them on this episode. I also got some good suggestions from Peter and I hit up friend of the show, Steve Krakow, because he is a definitely an expert in this kind of music. Got some good suggestions from him such as let's see which ones did I put on from Steve Stoneground was a band that he recommended that's really cool on here sweetwater was a steve recommendation put on the track motherless child from their self-titled album and some other stuff i put on here richie havens chamber's brothers we've talked about both of them before it's a beautiful day uh steve miller band who we mentioned and then a a young Shuggy Otis on an Al Cooper record from the Cooper Sessions album. Nice. Copperhead, as they mentioned. New Riders of the Purple Sage, a oh, Grateful yeah. Dead related band that is always very, very cheap and pretty good if you're into that kind of stuff. Buzzy Linhart, who we mentioned. The Electric Prunes from their later, more psychedelic era. Well, not more psychedelic, more... Uh, orchestrated. David Axelrod. uh, Cinematic sounding. Yeah. The David Axelrod years. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Cat Mother was a a group that Mm -hmm. Peter and I are both into that never seems to get talked about. That is a good one. Mm -hmm. Fever tree, fat mattress, the young bloods, lots of good stuff. Check it out on Spotify. Just search. I'd buy that podcast, all one word to find this and every other accompanying playlist to our episodes.
0: Wonderful. Can you think of any, Good record stores. You might find albums by artists that we just mentioned.
1: I sure can. (laughs) Perfect transition. Uh, We're going to give an official shout out to one of our favorite stores in Michigan, Three Pillars Music in Benton Harbor. They've been helping us out with some promotion stuff and have always been a, a good friend of some of the hosts of this show. So if you're in Benton Harbor, if you're in the the uh, Southwest Michigan area, or if you're just passing through on 94, check them out. They've always been probably my favorite, like I would say hidden gem store in Michigan. Not enough people talk about how great they are, but that also means that their stuff isn't as picked over as some other stores. Great deals, good selection, not too big. So you can just pop in and like look at everything they got for sale in in one quick browse. You can find them on Discogs also at discogs.com slash three pillars music. That's the number three. And they are open every day of the week except Monday. You can find them at 198 Water Street in Benton Harbor Arts District. Or you can reach them by email at threepillarsmusic at gmail.com. Or you can find out more information online at threepillarsmusic.com. And that's right on the way if you're.
2: In Chicago, let's say, or anywhere out west, and you're coming up through to South Haven, you're going to go right by there. Just drop right in.
1: Easy detour.
2: Yeah, and I know you're coming to do your boating up in South Haven, so swing through.
1: (laughs) Yeah,
0: for sure. I bought a Buffy St. Marie comp there, along with an Alice Cooper album one time, and the proprietor thought that was a hilarious combination of albums to buy.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. And if you pop in there, tell them the good folks that I'd buy that for a dollar sent you. And, uh, I can't like guarantee that you'll get a discount, but maybe, maybe if you're not an asshole about it,
0: <laughs> are we supposed to swear in our promo? <laughs> <laughs>
1: We'll just, you know, we'll just deal with the consequences, see what happens. (laughs) Our first promo, we're just going to start swearing. I'm sure that's going to get us a lot more business and advertising. (laughs) Hey, I won't uh, tell the
2: FTC if you guys don't. All right, deal. Keep it under the radar.
0: All right, well, I don't really have anything else to say about Quicksilver Messenger service. I am ready to get out of here on Song for Frisco, which... Starts with a scorching psychedelic lead from guitarist Gary Duncan. And I really like the strong harmonized chorus on this as well. So you guys want to do that? Get out of here.
1: Let's do it. My final thought is just because you've never heard someone hype a record doesn't mean that it's not dope. So try out some new stuff, blaze your own trail. My final
2: thought is Just because your dad liked it doesn't
1: necessarily
2: mean it's bad. All so (laughs) true. I guess depending on your dad.
1: Dads can rock too, you know.
0: Dad rock. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, good closing thoughts. And thank you so much, listener, for supporting I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook.
2: I'm Sean Hartman. And I am co-host Jeremy Ruggles.